This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a sometimes Clyde Barker, all things Clyde Barker podcast. Yeah, we'll go with that. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. How you doing, Brian? I am doing well, doing well. You're you're staying malleable with that intro. I'm I'm impressed. It's always just like we're in this nebulous <laughs> Clyde Barker uh, yeah. arena, and yeah, you keep finding ways to to kind of bring it home. So uh, there we more go. power to you because it's not we're we're keeping this thing very flexible. Yeah, flexibility is the name of the game. Although we are sort of treading on familiar ground today because, of course, we're talking about Volume 3 of Books of Blood, and we've talked about two previous volumes. So if you liked what we talked about before, you're probably going to like a little bit, most of it, what we're talking about today. Some of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny we were talking about this off mic we're we're both a little bit more meh on this volume but i feel like we're both struggling to decide is it that the stories aren't as good as the other two volumes or is it just that we've read too many of these in too short a time and we're just kind of maxed out yeah i think it's probably a little from column a a little from column b i mean Mm -hmm. in terms of the amount like we're looking at we have read three books worth of short stories from the same person mm-hmm. uh, in over the course of a couple of months and right. like paying enough attention to really talk about them, you know? So sometimes you can kind of blow through these things in a way where it's just like, you know, just eating a bag of chips where you'll just right. kind of let it kind of, you know, you're just eating. You're not even noticing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, trying to do it where you're trying to like pay at least enough attention to be able to talk about it intelligently. You know, mm-hmm. that requires a certain level of, of, uh, mental capacity that you know there's work involved and right. the omnibus that i've been reading it's 507 pages long and it's not a mm-hmm. small no. sized book like there's a lot on each page yeah. so one of the things i actually also realized getting to the end of this is clive barker's short stories ain't so short like <laughs> a lot of these like they tiptoe towards the realm of novella mm-hmm. and A book the size that we were reading, the fact that most of these are like 40 plus pages Mm -hmm. is significant when you, when you consider like how much is here. Yeah. But I I do also think this stretch of stories, even for someone like Clive Barker, like, I don't know if these were released at all according to like when he wrote them or Mm -hmm. like how they were curated. But like, I would see volume three as like, this was Clive Barker's I was going through some shit era because there's just something very just I don't know like uh, mm-hmm. I don't know like a lot of the whimsy or, or like the the playfulness that you see in a lot of his other stuff seems to be absent here right yeah that's interesting because in our previous episodes you have gravitated towards some of I hesitate to say lighthearted because I don't know that any of the stories are truly. Like, that's not a fitting description for any of them. No. But there have been more comical ones. There have been, yeah, ones that air on the whimsy, as you said. And these ones are all pretty 
grim. Mm-hmm. Even like because I'm I reviewed the the little synopses on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and one of the ones we're going to talk about was written as a black comedy, and we'll get oh. to it. But like looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, that is a pretty ridiculous premise. But when I'm reading it, like none of that is coming through, and mm-hmm. that might have been on purpose to kind of like contrast the ridiculous premise with. The fact that he's playing it like very kind of straightforward, but uh, we'll we'll get to that shortly, I'm sure. Yeah, that is an interesting point, because one of the things that you and I had a bit, I don't want to say a disagreement about, but we had a conversation about the order of the shorts in Mm. the last episode in volume two. And I don't know that I have an issue with that, but I do wonder if some of these stories in volume three might have contrasted or played better against some of the stories in the other volumes as opposed to this order, this volume for number three. Yeah, like I, I think I would just generally be interested to find out what went behind curating the order mm-hmm. um, because sometimes it does seem like whoever put together the playlist could have done a little bit of a better job because right. either mixing things up a little bit more or not stacking things like not mm-hmm. front loading things or putting things next to one another that like this was what we talked about with the, the last volume. Like I know there was definitely one story that paled in comparison to the one before it. And right. so it might have been a better read had it not come after one that was so solid. Mm-hmm. So did you find that you had that kind of issue here or would you say that these are all at a certain quality level? I think they're all at a certain quality level. And I think because they are all so of a similar feel that Mm -hmm. it was harder to get through it because after a while it was just like this like wash of gray. I don't know. It was Mm. just it wasn't um, there wasn't like the ups and downs that some of the other volumes had. So it wasn't necessarily uh-huh. that any one story suffered in comparison to another. It was that like a lot of these just kind of felt somewhat similar, even though they were talking about very different things, uh, right. which then kind of goes back to the initial discussion of like, is this just, we were burnt out at this point. So it's all like, is that just mm-hmm. brain space on our part as opposed to the the writing? Yeah, that is an interesting point, because I definitely did feel a little bit burnt out. I left this a little bit too late, and I ended up having to rush and kind of speed read through a couple of these. Mm -hmm. I felt like the fourth story, Scapegoats, is a really interesting premise, but it's shorter. It's quite a bit shorter than a lot of the other stories in this volume, and I feel like it suffers from that, although I don't know exactly how you might have made it longer in some ways yeah honestly by that point i noticed it was a lot shorter and i'm like oh good (laughs) a short one for once Mm -hmm. yeah i mean maybe that is a benefit and at that point i was just kind of like oh well i like this concept but where is the substance Mm -hmm. the other weird thing that i couldn't shake in this particularly after i got past rawhead rex which to me is the standout story of this volume and folks We're acknowledging that there is a film adaptation. We're acknowledging that we've heard it's not very good. But since Brian and I have both not seen the film, we are going to do a special mini-sode on that. So we'll talk briefly about Rawhead Rex, but we're not going to go too, too deep into it because we'll, we'll give it its own episode. But I found that that was my kind of favorite story. And several of the other ones, particularly the first one, Son of Celluloid, uh, the middle one, Confessions of a Pornographer's Shroud, and then the last one, Human Remains, they all 
felt very Stephen Kingy to me. Hmm. I can see that. I didn't, I like, it didn't occur to me when we were reading them, but that's definitely something I can see in hindsight with those. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we dive into this first one, which is Son of Celluloid. And this should be appealing to us right off the bat because it's a movie theater story. I guess. It, it was, it was <laughs> fun. Um, so I appreciated the premise in a way that it was like, oh, this is, I think this is the closest probably of all these where you get a little of that like touch of whimsy from Barker because he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's introducing the idea of like the movies coming alive. And there definitely is a little bit of humor because so the premise here is that a, an escaped convict dies in like the back room or like the back walls of a movie theater or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that serves as the catalyst to kind of like bring out the I actually I'll be honest. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at the Wikipedia synopsis and it explains it's very that, succinct and it's not really how the story reads. Like okay. it is true, okay. but I was just like, oh, it takes a while to get there. Cause the the idea that it says it's so you find out this this convict, he's bleeding to death, but he also has cancer in his stomach. Mm-hmm. I did not read that as the way the Wikipedia page does is saying that basically the cancerous tumor gains sentience um, and kind of like takes over the movie theater, like mm-hmm. supernaturally. Right. Like the way I was reading it was that there was some kind of like supernatural entity or, or some kind of essence within the movie theater that this guy's death act as the catalyst to kind of wake that up. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't see it as like, I didn't see the tumor as being the source, but again, I don't know if that's like, did I just miss that? Or is that Wikipedia being Wikipedia? I don't think it's as clear as Wikipedia Mm -hmm. is making it sound because I had a similar sort of response to this story where I thought, okay, so there just so happened to be this cancer that was there, but yeah, it was a combination of his body being there and then the way that people feel about movies, the way that they respond and react to it, that ends up waking the cancer up. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it's, I'm, I'm glad to know that it's not just me because I thought it was like, you know, did I just completely misread this? So it sounds, mm-hmm. sounds like it is a little bit more nebulous in the yes. way it reads in the story. So, what that then entails is that it wakes up the movies that are playing like it's some kind of it's almost like this horror based last action hero where mm-hmm. you wind up in the movie itself. Like I would say here there is a little bit of horror slash comedic um, mm-hmm. elements involved because it's these, you know, movie employees uh, slash patrons who just find themselves like I think it's in the men's bathroom at one point. Mm-hmm. So like there's this whole sequence where uh, John Wayne, quote unquote, like shoots a guy because mm-hmm. he took a dump in the middle of his saloon. But right. for the guy, he was going to the bathroom. So mm-hmm. it was just there is definitely like some playful elements there. Um but I don't know the whole thing. Like it's got some fun elements to it. It just doesn't really go anywhere for me. Yeah. I think one of the challenges that I had specifically with this volume, it'll, it'll turn up again in confessions of a pornographer shroud. We changed the perspectives a couple of times and Mm. 
it sometimes lends the story a bit of a herky-jerky feel to me. Like, this isn't the first time we've encountered this. Uh, When we talked about the story in Volume 2, Hell's Event, where we're changing perspectives over the course of that run for democracy versus demons. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea, but here it feels like we're telling the story of first this escaped convict and you like, you get enough time to establish who he is, what he's about, and you kind of think that's where the story's going and then he just dies. And then all of a sudden we have to start over again so that we can talk about the movie theater employees and then we shift perspective from the boy theater employee to the girl and it's not bad but it felt like three short stories tackling the same kind of thing and yeah it just felt too stop start for me and then there was also the issue of the fat phobia which has not aged particularly well yeah yeah it's um i don't remember necessarily like it ringing any big bells in my head when i was reading it at the time but Mm -hmm. i think it's more just because it's like we have come so not far with that Right. That it's just like it. There's not that stark contract is like, ooh, we didn't say that anymore. Like that shit mm-hmm. that you'd still read today, which For is sure. a sad commentary. But yeah, and then you also you get a little bit of that, and I think it's a discussion we'll be having a couple of times. Is like, is the fat phobia coming from Barker? Is mm-hmm. it coming from the character? Like, is it who is that coming from? Right, and I honestly can't say for sure. Um, because mm-hmm. if you are going by that, like that Stephen King feel, Stephen King is very good at writing kind of shitty people who you still right. kind of can sympathize with. Um, and that kind of, you know, that fat phobic approach is something I think would fit very well with one of his characters. And it, it, it makes you wonder, is that, you know, in this case, is that Barker making a commentary or like, is that what Barker sees or is he just writing this kind of shitty theater usher and that's how he's kind of letting that play out mm-hmm. yeah it, it's complicated of course because a we're looking at this through a very contemporary lens we did talk about fat people and fatness in different ways in the past particularly as long ago as the late 80s and early 90s which is of course when this short story is coming out when we talked about this in the horror queers book club because, of course, we we read along at the, around the same rate. We ended up sort of siding with this is the character and mm. not Barker, because a lot of the time when the word is being used, it's the character, the, the female employee who's describing herself. And she seems not to like herself too, too much until her size actually becomes her advantage. It's part of what gives her agency and allows her to thwart this cancerous entity. Mm. So... I think I took a bit more umbrance with it because it's just, it's very glaring, right? Like we're saying the word fat a lot to mm-hmm. describe this girl. Like it is her primary descriptor. And I found that very abrasive. But at the end of the day, I did appreciate that it wasn't for nothing. Like her fatness is an important component of the story in terms of what happens. And if we are looking at that through the lens of someone seeing themselves, like, mm-hmm. As as someone who has often seen himself as fat throughout his life, seeing yourself within that context and within contrast of other people in the world, it does kind of become a defining feature for yourself where it mm-hmm. kind of takes over. So, yeah, fat becomes a, a very common word in your own vocabulary. So I can right. definitely see that being true to that character. 
But then you have the question of like, this is being written by a man who is very much not fat in Clive Barker. So like, to what degree of authenticity can he represent that? Yeah. And I think I'd be curious to hear from listeners if they feel comfortable sharing their reading experiences or maybe like if they consider themselves fat Mm -hmm. like does this story resonate you know i compare this to something like the final story human remains which is about a young gay prostitute in london's uh queer scene and that story to me read a lot more authentically and i was Mm -hmm. just like oh well this is reading almost as semi-autobiographical it reads very much like clive barker writing about himself and that story to me had a much truer ring to the character yeah yeah and with this it's you know i couldn't really tell you how authentic it is uh because you know even if i do identify as fat i have not had to have the experience of being a fat woman in this country Mm -hmm. which is a very different different experience yeah yeah Okay, um, so as we said, we're going to devote a little bit more time to Rawhead Rex in the future. But I'm curious, Brian, do you have any like broad thoughts or feelings about this story? Probably my favorite of the bunch. So I'm glad okay. this is going to be the one we dig into more. Nice. Yeah. For, for as little humor as I found in this batch, mm-hmm. I found more of it here just because it's so over-the-top mean-spirited that right. to a degree I have to think like that's on purpose to the point of being almost comedic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'll get into that more. But, yeah, this is – I like this one. This is, this is Clive Barker doing folk horror and bringing yeah. a lot of those Clive Barker elements to it. Yeah, I really appreciated the folk horror – I appreciated the mean-spiritedness because, as most folks know, if you've followed me or heard me talk about things involving child murder, I am very pro-child murder. And this short is particularly mean in that regard. (laughs) I don't know if that's a Canadian thing because, like, Scott (laughs) Scott Drebbit is a very vocal proponent of child murder on screen. Uh, (laughs) It's come up several times. I just think, like, when it's warranted, when it's done well, Mm -hmm. I think it's very effective at capturing the stakes. Like, I'm sorry, but in the description that we know of this monster, they would not hesitate to kill a child. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go into it more in the future, but I just think that there's a mean-spiritedness. There's a bit of comedy, you're right, because it is almost absurdly violent, Mm -hmm. but also I think some of the descriptions of the gore here are really captivating yeah yeah they're they are intense but it's got that barker flair for like Mm -hmm. that that prose that like man that's imaginative it's not just like because i don't often get too into what i call endurance horror where it's like uh i haven't seen it but the most recent thing i can think of is the sadness where Mm -hmm. people are just talking Mm -hmm. about how like horrible and mean it is and like movies like that are that that are just doing it for the sake of doing it and seeing like how like far over the line they can go don't hold a lot of interest to me i think something like rawhead rex though in the hands of someone like clive barker who is he's a line stepper but he does it with a level of flair that i think Mm -hmm. makes it more interesting than when a lot of other people do it Absolutely. Yeah. And and Flair is such a great descriptor for this, right? Where it's almost like a maniacal glee 
mm-hmm. some of these descriptions that you just you don't get from other people who are just out to shock you or titillate you. Yeah, yeah. This he is so much better than your common edge lord. You know, it is right. He yes. just it's he brings so much more to it and does something that that brings it to another level. Hmm. Truly. Okay. Well, let's move on to the third story, which is Confessions of a Pornographer Shroud. I'm curious, what did you think of this more crime supernatural story? So this is the one that Wikipedia lists as being a black comedy, which Mm -hmm. I did not read. I did not get. (laughs) At all when I was reading it. And again, I think that might be more of our, our mindset, because when you really think about the premise, this is an uptight accountant. Mm-hmm. who realizes that he has been working for pornographers, flips mm-hmm. his shit, and they murder him. Yeah. And so he winds up coming back in the closest thing. He basically possesses the closest thing he can find in the morgue, which is a shroud. Mm-hmm. And so he literally goes through the rest of this story as like a classic like sheet ghost. Right. You know, and of course, it's got Barker's flair, so he turns all kinds of other things into it. It's very gory. It is mm-hmm. very, very bleak in a lot of ways. But it's looking back on it, it's like, yeah, this is ridiculous. You know, this is a, a sheet ghost running around and murdering people. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I appreciate it more in that lens. Uh, I did like this one. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting. But yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think I did need to look back on it through the lens of like, no, this is supposed to be kind of funny. Uh, and then right. realize like, oh, yeah, and it kind of is. Yeah, I'll confess I never would have thought of this as a dark comedy, a black comedy. And yet when you think about the way that it ends with the girl discovering, like the daughter of this crime boss discovers the most horribly mutilated works after this sheet has mm-hmm. killed her father and the bodyguards protecting him. And it, it's very glib, right? She's kind mm-hmm. of like, Meh, doesn't care because, you know, she's a child. She doesn't understand it. And yet yeah. at the same time, you're just like, oh, that's horrific. Yeah. But there's, there is a lot of funniness to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, I almost hesitate to explain what it is she's seeing because mm-hmm. I feel like there would be something. And I feel like this is a very Barker thing where he's like, you read that. Now it's in your head. Now you're mm-hmm. complicit. Like, fuck you. Right. Uh, And so now there's almost for me an embarrassment. Like, I'm too timid to actually say what it is she finds. So if you (laughs) if you want to know how this ends up, like it's fucked up and you're going to have to also be complicit. So, yeah, I mean, I will say that was my favorite death of this entire book because it was so genuinely unexpected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's also established because Again, there's a ridiculousness of like, how is this sheet doing this? Mm-hmm. But it's acknowledged. You know, it's yeah. not like well explained, but it's mm-hmm. it's explained in enough in a way where it's like Barker gets like, yeah, this is this shouldn't be possible. So right. I'm I'm giving enough of a nod to that to say like, okay, go with it, folks. This is what we got. Yeah. If you go in with a healthy dose of skepticism, you're going to wonder about the logistics of this. But if you just accept, oh, this is a, a shroud that has a lot of, quote unquote, muscle behind mm-hmm. it, like it can do amazing feats of strength. And, you know, it's malleable in the way that a piece of cloth is. You could do some pretty significant damage with it. And if you can accept it and go along with it, then there is fun to be had here. And they they do push the idea that it's like this guy's will 
is really pushing this. It's not like physical strength. It's not like muscle. It is mm-hmm. this guy's need for revenge is making this this shroud able to do things that it would in no way be able to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a fun one. I don't think it's necessarily a standout, but it's enjoyable enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then we get to the short one called Scapegoats, and this is our kind of, like, big, supernatural, semi-cosmic story, although you wouldn't know it from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it, it sneaks up on you. I I appreciate that this one is shorter because it is so fatalistic, and I mm-hmm. think there's, like, a nihilism to it that yes. is just, if I had to spend, like... You know, I think this wound up being like 25 pages. If I had to spend like 40, 50, 60 pages in this, it mm-hmm. would have been like, okay, I I can't do this anymore. Um, so I am glad because it starts off with this these four people on a yacht. Uh, I will say I had a little bit of trouble at first, like pinpointing mm-hmm. like what era this was supposed to be. Like I wasn't 100% oh, sure. sure. Like is this is this a modern day story? Is this mm-hmm. like, you know, <laughs> like – for lack of a better term, like, is this our flag means death era where it's kind of like, you know, uh, a little like pirate ship or something like that. It was uh-huh. once we got into it, I was able to kind of like, yeah, no, this is like, I think it's fairly contemporary. A quartet. Yeah. A yeah. quartet of people who are on vacation. Yeah. If only because they're pretty sexually liberated. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's our cue that it's, it's set in, in present times. My issue was that not only does the main character have a masculine sounding name, I think it's like Robbie, if I'm not mistaken, but um, she often does not read like a woman to me. Yeah. And I wonder to what degree that's Clive Barker going like, eh, I don't know. Well, like, I don't know if we can say that because like we know in Hellbound Heart, he knows how to write women fairly well. Mm hmm. To, to a degree. And maybe he had to find his his niche for that. You know, he had to kind of get there. Right. Um, but here, yeah, it's kind of – because he also, I think, physically describes her as very tomboyish. You know, right. she's like, you know, very lithe. She's athletic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not uh, – she's got small breasts. And yeah, at first, I didn't realize this was from the point of view of a woman, the, right. way, the way he was writing her. So – the more we talk about that, the more I, I kind of think that was a deliberate choice as opposed okay. to just his ability to write a woman. I don't know to what end that necessarily is. I was going to say, yeah. if so, that's a bit perplexing because at the end of the day, I mean, I do think the gender, like this is two women, two men. I don't know that it inherently comes into play in a big way the further the story gets on. But initially, it the gender parity does seem very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like... You know, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of taste of like <laughs> Clive Barker's read on what heterosexual sex must be like, which is just like completely <laughs> devoid completely of passion, unsatisfying and unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, it was that was an an interesting scene where he talks about you know early on where uh, the the main character has sex with her boyfriend, maybe mm. or you know you don't know. Um, it's a rapey, if we're being honest. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's that, yeah. This guy just comes up behind her and, like, sticks his hand down her pants, and she's like, no, okay. Like, he is not looking for uh, enthusiastic consent <laughs> in, in this. No. So, yeah, and I, I think that goes towards, you know, I, I think that's deliberate. I think it goes towards 
this is a character who is very emblematic of of this whole batch of stories i think like that feeling of just like eh. gray yeah exactly <laughs> yeah She's so go with the flow to me, yeah. like, which I think is the payoff at the end where I fully thought, you know, spoiler alert, folks, if you have not read this short, they basically landed on an island composed almost entirely of dead bodies. And mm. when they rock the sacrificial goats by accidentally killing one and not realizing what they were doing, they upset all of these corpses and the island more or less swallows them whole. Yeah. Yeah, and actually that does kind of establish an interesting kind of framing between the sex scene where she's just kind of like, well, this might as well happen, sure. which very much mirrors the end where she, she just gets and the, up, the caretaker, right? yeah, the caretaker, they're trying to get off uh, of the, the island on like this little rowboat, but the, the dead bodies catch up with them, pull them under and pull her under the sea. Mm-hmm. And just like that, she's, well, this... Might as well happen. I don't care. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think they're, I, I think both of those things are, are supposed to mirror each other a little bit. It is interesting, right? I mean, it goes against convention and logic that she would just succumb to this. Like, I was very much primed for, okay, how is she going to get out of this? And this yeah. caretaker doesn't deserve to die because he's been faithfully adhering to the rules. And it was confronting. For that ending, like this isn't a long story. It's not like we know these characters really well. But at the same time, I wasn't used to seeing people just kind of give up. And I I had to reconcile that within myself. Yeah, yeah. Especially considering, if I remember correctly, I think this is told in first person. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all signs are pointing towards, well, she's going to get out of this somehow. Otherwise, how sure. she's telling the story. But it just keeps going where she's telling the story after, after she's, she's been pulled dead. over and dead. And, yeah. you know, there's that idea of like, you don't know. Like, she's mm-hmm. like, it could have been an hour. If this could have been weeks. But like, eventually she resolves that just a matter of time has passed. And just mm-hmm. like, I think that kind of goes with the whole fatalistic attitude of the the whole story. Yeah, this is the one that I would have taken longer. I appreciate what you're saying about that fatalistic bent. Definitely agree with it. But the premise was really interesting to me. And I kind of wanted to unpack it a little bit more. Like I wanted to spend more time in this world. If only because, and I think part of the reason this felt just a touch Stephen King-ish to me, is that it felt like the main thrust of the story was to do this big reveal like "Ooh, this is an island that's alive with the corpses of dead people who have washed up for in memoriam blah 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 yeah. and i found that really interesting but also it felt like oh well now that you know the story is over and i would have liked something more i wanted to spend more time there and it also there would have been and for for as glad as i am is it it's short Mm-hmm. If there if there was a way to tell this story and bring in enough elements to give it a longer narrative push, that ending, if it came at the end of a novel, like how mm. fucked up would that have been? Oh, like you yeah. spend a full novel with this character and you spent it with her in the first person. And at the end, she just like you're just there with her while she's giving up. Right. That would have been pretty wild. True. And and something that you would probably only be able to do in book form, because as a film or a TV show, audiences would revolt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I think there's something about like telling it from her point of view, like mm-hmm. uh, you can't inhabit a character. Right. 
inherently when you're watching them on screen versus when mm. you're reading uh, reading about them in a book because For sure. there is that element of like and I I say this as someone who I'm not saying this in a snobby book reader kind of way because I'm really not for the most part. I really stick to, to movies more than books. But the thing that you get from a book that you inherently can't get from something that's on screen is putting yourself in that person's position. Mm-hmm. Because if you are watching it on a screen, there is literally another person that you are looking at. So it's yeah. hard to really you know, inhabit that. But when you're reading the book, you can be there. You can be them. A hundred percent. And so that end experience is something that I think is much better felt when you can fully inhabit it as opposed to watching it happen to someone else. Yeah. Like the best, and this is not to say it's a concession, it's merely an alternative, is you don't identify so much as you care for mm-hmm. characters on screen. Whereas, yeah. yeah, you're right. You can literally inhabit characters in books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird because this is the point where I was really speed reading to kind of get through the book in time for that book club meeting. And I thought, oh, good, a short one. I can just cruise through this. And it was the one that I ended up, it's not my favorite, but it's the one where I was just like, huh, this one. Okay. You go. You go, scapegoats. I think the ending made that, the more I think about it. Yeah, it was... Because I think it was the one that <laughs> this would be the one that gave, that I gave like the most improved award to because okay. it was the one that I cared about the least at the beginning. Oh, um, yeah. But mm-hmm. the one that had the biggest impact by the end of it. Which is wild, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that's why I love having these conversations with you because I went into this being like, well, it was short and I wanted more. And instead you're like, dude, that's why it works because it was short. It had the biggest payoff. <laughs> or it needs to be a lot longer because I, yeah. I apparently don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We're, we're just making our way through this as we Sure. Did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So last story is Human Remains. We briefly mentioned it before. This is the one about the young gay prostitute. He has a bad night, quote unquote, where Things are going against him. He finally ends up picking up a John. This guy seems safe. He's not particularly worried about his health. But this dude is an archaeologist with a shady object in his apartment, Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this one was uh, interesting. Um, I did get, I think, a few shades of, of what we would get from Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that thing that that needs to feed off the essence of other people right. in order to survive. Um, yep. But yeah, it, it turns out the, I think the big distinguishing thing here is that there's that doppelganger element. And that yeah. it starts to turn into the person that it it wants to inhabit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there was some interesting stuff going on here. It was, uh, <laughs> we, we were talking a little bit in a private chat and Twitter about how uh, it is a very 1984 product because there is a very jarring instance where uh, oh, he refers to a character as a black um and just (laughs) flat out racism there it is on the page i (laughs) i stopped dead i was like exactly i I misread that right no that's literally what i i i messaged you about because i'm like am i misreading this like is there another could this no this is from england is there another thing this could be referring to Uh, it is so fucking confronting like it it took me right out (laughs) 
And it's another one of those situations where is he coming at this from the point of view of the character? Is this uh, mm. Gavin, I believe, is the character, right? Right. Is is this Gavin saying that, you know, is that is that Gavin's take on his approach to race? Or is that a mid-80s white man, you know, mm-hmm. using the the lingo that, I don't know, maybe at that point was fairly acceptable? It's really hard to say, but considering how autobiographical this reads, it is... True. It's a little harder to separate the character from the author in this one, now that you mention it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> it's, and it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, there might be some people reading this or listening to this saying like, it's a line in mm-hmm. in the book you know, or in this story. It doesn't necessarily, I, I think it still carries into kind of some of the, I would argue that it carries into some of the additional sequences, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, people might wonder, like, why are we getting so hung up on this? And it's just, there's a level to which it's just so jarring that, yeah. again, going back to the idea of, like, immersing yourself in a story, when you hit that brick wall, that line, for me, and it sounds like for you, it's hard to keep going with the flow of the story when it's just like, shit, like, mm-hmm. okay, if I'm stopping in the middle of the story because I need to go ask you a question, then it's hard to stay immersed in the world of that story. Yeah. And, you know, we raised the issue of race in Hell's Event in the last episode when we covered Books of Blood 2. And it's a little different this go around because that was a bad and almost unnecessary character choice. You're right that this could be construed as, well, this is how Gavin sees the world. This is very much an antagonist. Like this is a man who is going to confront him, who threatens to ruin his livelihood by defacing him, possibly even killing him. But this isn't also just like 2023 woke language. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't just us having a contemporary response because it feels again, blatantly unnecessary, like to say it this way, to treat a character who is already coded as bad. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where it takes you out of the story. And this is a good story. I would argue that this is maybe the second best story of the volume. Mm. And there's so much other interesting things. Like the whole point of the story to me is actually about the empathetic and communal nature of the relationship between this idol this doppelganger and gavin but it also becomes really hard to relate to gavin because he's kind of a fucking racist yeah yeah but i guess to a degree there's there's a conversation there to be had because as we get to the end of this story and basically it resolves with the the statue successfully takes over his life Mm-hmm. You know, and and there's this kind of discussion about how in order for it to completely take over, it essentially needs to take your soul. Yes. And the way that that manifests in terms of how you see it in Gavin is that he loses his emotion. Mm-hmm. And you see that represented in the end where he's visiting his father's grave, but his doppelganger is already there and his doppelganger is sadder about his dad than he is. Yeah. And... You could argue that, like, at that point, Gavin doesn't care that he has lost his emotions because he doesn't have any to care with. Mm-hmm. But then there's also an interesting question about how, like, 
is he also glad to be rid of them? Because he maybe he didn't like them in the first place. Like right. a lot of his life was very physically based and mm -hmm. like greed based. You know, so maybe he didn't really feel like he was missing anything by losing those emotions. You know, and if we're looking at someone through that lens of maybe someone who doesn't really like himself, mm -hmm. if we're looking at someone who's kind of shitty in that way when it comes to race, then maybe it it matches up with kind of what the, the story is supposed to be. Um, and again, yeah. I feel like we come to this time and time again where it's like, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate because mm -hmm. I don't know that we should give yeah. Barker that much credit. I don't know if he's thinking about it nearly as much or if he was thinking about it nearly as much as we are. So as you were saying that, I realized one of the other attributes we haven't talked about that Gavin very much embodies is narcissism. As you mm -hmm. said, he's very much uh, about the physicality. It's about his aesthetics, his looks, right? Like we're repeatedly told about how young he looks how fresh face he is how he embodies something that other sex workers do not and that's what makes him that's what makes him so successful i wonder if part of this is that he is so driven by the visual and how people look on the outside mm -hmm. could that be a reason for the term where it's like literally i'm noticing skin color yeah i just see you are defined by your color yeah Again, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we're being too generous. Yeah. Because um, you would like to think that conversation is happening because, you know, I, I definitely see that discourse among, like, in terms of, like, racism among the queer community, you know, and mm -hmm. trying not to turn this into, like, me bringing up all of, like, the, the pop words, but intersectionality mm -hmm. right. in terms of, I think there used to be that sense that among all repressed groups that, like, well, you're all oppressed, so you're you don't see any of that reflected internally. And mm -hmm. that is absolutely not the case. Not where, true at you know, all. No, there's a bunch of queer, queer people can be racist. Trans women. Yeah, there's yeah. a bunch of white gays who think that they're better off than black gays and so on. Yeah, it's no, there's a lot of divisions. So it's, you know, if we are giving this a, a generous viewpoint, like maybe that is Barker investigating that. Mm -hmm. um or it could be that this was written by a white man in 1984 <laughs> right. and and none of this was on his mind uh yeah. i would be interested to it's something i didn't necessarily consider but i don't know maybe that'll be something uh as a, a to do i'll see if there's any interviews with him or something mm -hmm. that talks about like did anything go into that beyond how we're reading it initially right well it's interesting, right? Because some of these texts are very specific about where they're located. And this one is explicit in saying we're setting it in London. If you know anything about the UK, they've always had a challenging relationship to race, to immigration, and so on. So like, it's not as though racism is a new thing in the UK. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting it's better or worse than anywhere else, but like we we know that uh, like darker colored skin folk in the UK have had a lot of challenges around their race, around their skin color. Yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, you know, here in the states, we don't really have to contend with any of those racial oh, issues. Oh, sure. Yeah, ne never been a problem in the states. Yeah, no, not an issue <laughs> at all. And Canada is, you know, we're we're like a, a generous collection of different ethnicities. We never have any racist issues. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's yeah, move absolutely. On. Yes, please. Please, please, please. 
So that is volume three. As we mentioned repeatedly, we will talk about Rawhead Rex in our next episode. I'm excited and horrified because I've seen images from the Rawhead Rex movie. And yeah. It's going to be one of those things where it's like, let's gush about the short story and then let's lament what happens when we get an adaptation. <laughs> yeah, I am very interested to see the contrast between the way all this stuff is described in the short story and mm -hmm. how it is brought to screen. Because, yeah, right. I've, there's definitely a man in a rubber monster suit feel oh, to, sure. to this movie. So I'm very excited to see like it's gonna be one of those things where like i think even if it's absolutely terrible like mm -hmm. i'm hoping i'm hoping it's all the way terrible like i don't yes. want it i don't I want, want it to just be camp. middle of the road yeah yeah <laughs> like i don't want it to just be like eh. i want it to be like that was a travesty and i yes. loved it like that's what i'm looking for i uh, would love that as well <laughs> yeah uh, I'm very curious. I've heard so much about this and I love that once again, this podcast is going to give us an excuse slash opportunity to <laughs> rectify that gap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed for camp. Yeah. So that'll be the next time. And then after that, we are still on the hunt for new and alternative forms of content. So I think we're going to check out that Hellraiser Bloodline original script. And then I think we're going to compare and contrast that with Hellraiser Bloodline, what we actually got. Maybe the closest we get to a Jaeger cut is going to be yeah. reading, this, reading mm -hmm. this script. Yeah. But uh, until we come back for Rawhead Rex, Mr. Brian, how would people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about any of these stories? Please feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Evil Taylor Hicks. That's where I am most of the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I give you reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, thanks, as always, to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Be sure to, you know, rate, review, subscribe, listen to some of the other shows on the network because I'm on most of them, so I can say that they're they're pretty <laughs> solid. <laughs> how many how many shows do you have at this point, Joe? I don't want to talk about it. Okay, that's fair. That is fair. <laughs> I nearly need both hands. We'll put it that way. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some heft and girth to the number of shows that you're on. There is that, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Good. I like to think that they're all a little distinct, though. So if you can bear the sound of my voice, you'll have different kinds of conversations with different types of folks, such as yourself. Hi. Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so folks, we will be back for Rawhead Rex. And until then, um, become a sheet and pull out a man's intestines? <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Hashtag goals. <laughs> squad.